Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing time, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, July the 22nd, 2021. This is episode 2,919 of the Survival Podcast. And today we will have, of course, an expert council Q&A show. I've got a great lineup of the experts for you. I've got Dr. Ken Berry. We talked last week about keto carnivore type living for people who are thin, people who are at the weight they want to be at. Does it make sense for them? This week we're going to go even further in the opposite direction. What if you're underweight? What if you've spent the majority of your life trying to put on weight and have been unable to do so? Does it make sense to go on to a diet that many people go on to for weight loss? This is interesting to me because I've heard people say, well, when are you going to stop eating keto? As though if you do that, eventually you'll waste away to nothing. So we'll hear what the doctor has to say about that rather than me. Tim the Toolman Cook will talk about leaky chain bar oil in DeWalt cordless chainsaws. Is it a known issue? If there is, what should you do about it? John Pugliano, investor, investment advisor extraordinaire. Actually, I should say investment manager extraordinaire. Using self-directed IRAs for crypto. We're slowly dragging Mr. Pugliano against his will, kicking and screaming to the world of crypto. And futures contracts, not necessarily crypto-related for investing. It's a twofer from John. Derek Bonpietro. Dealing with a vehicle that was stored long-term with old gas in it. We just talked about not letting this happen. What if you already did? That's been sitting there a long time, and that gas is old. What do you do? Darby Simpson on building high-quality pasture with rotational grazing. This is a follow-up from a Miyagi Mornings episode that I did a while ago and how to get that quality pasture in quick, moving faster. Old Doc Bones talks about treating alopecia areta, I think is how you say the second word, alopecia areta with alternative methods. What the hell is AA is what I'm going to call it, right? Don't worry, Doc will tell you when he gives the answer. And I have a quote of the day for you. It will be my commentary at the end of today's episode. It's by... Our seventh president, Andrew Jackson, he said one time, I've always been afraid of banks. I think it's really easy to not understand that quote, and I thought it'd be an interesting one to go uh, over today, especially in a world where crypto gives us the power to be our own bank or possibly even to be our own bankers. I'll talk to you about what the hell does that mean, and I don't just mean for ourselves. All of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, I want to start out today with reminding you guys about the Member Support Brigade. I usually do that toward the end. I wanted to move it up to the beginning today. Um, I don't push the Members Brigade anywhere near as often as I should since it is my primary way that I make a living on this show. But I just want to, want to point out that you can become a member today. It takes you a few minutes to do. It's cheap. It's 50 bucks a year, assuming you don't qualify for the service discount. And if you use the discounts, you get your money back. So if you listen to the show, you like the show, you think maybe he's a jerk, but I really enjoy what he puts out, um, consider joining and support the work that I do. Make sure that we'll be here forever and get your money back. And actually, most people make a profit. Here's just one example. 
Members of the MSB get $10 a month off of one of our sponsors alone, ButcherBox. That's $120 a year back in your pocket on a $50 membership on a single vendor. We have several different vendors for CBD products. Any single order on those, the, the more expensive or larger orders alone, can put enough money back in your pocket to cover your MSB. We have two great, outstanding coffee vendors. One also deals in some uh, CBD product as well. But coffee is an expensive thing. It really is, and most of us enjoy drinking really great coffee. The discounts there alone over a year can easily pay for your membership. We have discounts on, like I think it's like five different places that sell seeds. Most of us are buying those every year. I have a discount on, I think, the best organic fertilizer available in the country. Dr. Earth, all of their products, 10% off. And there's like 70 more companies. I have a new one. Guy's been on me like, man, get us in there. I know. I've been busy this week. It's been hard. I'm going to try to get him in over the weekend. Um, another uh, vendor of teas. A really exceptional vendor of teas. And I have several others in that realm as well. Anything, if you're someone that listens to the show, I guarantee you there's stuff in there that you're buying anyway. You could be buying for less and supporting the show. So if you've not become a member yet, think about becoming a member. And did I say discount? I did. I have a first responders discount, and it applies this way. Military and law enforcement. I also include Peace Corps in this, and first responders, EMTs, paramedics, etc. And this is not retired and active only like some people do. If you served in any of these capacities for any length of time, you qualify for a discount, email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line, and... Uh, you send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service one sentence, and I'll send you the discount code. And it's a significant discount. With that, let's go ahead and get into this, starting off, leading off with Dr. Ken Berry, keto carnivore for the underweight. Hello, TSP family. This is Dr. Ken Berry. Today I'm answering, answering a question for Clark. Uh, Clark says, how does a carnivore keto diet benefit underweight people. I am a 21-year-old man and I weigh 125 pounds. I eat a pretty average diet, but I'm thinking about a keto carnivore diet. I would like to know if it is worth it for me to spend the money to eat a meat centralized diet. I've been trying to gain weight for the last six years, but to no avail. I work construction, so I do plenty of exercise. I need to know I know that I need to cut all sugar out of my diet. I have cut all caffeine, but for the last few weeks and mentally, I'm much more clear. Okay, Clark. So first of all, uh, a meat-heavy diet is the ancestrally appropriate diet for Homo sapiens sapiens, which is you, a human being. There is uh, just unequivocal evidence in the paleoanthropological records that for the last two to three million years, humans ate what is considered a super carnivore diet, meaning that 70% of their food intake came from animal-based sources, whether that was meat or bone marrow or brains or organ meat. We ate lots of animals. And so basically our species evolved on this kind of diet, and our species does best on this kind of diet. Uh, you're a pretty slender guy, and so you don't really have to worry about weight loss, and that's good because a keto or a carnivore diet are not really a weight loss diet. They're a weight optimization diet. I've actually seen people gain weight on keto or carnivore should they need to, 
to get closer to their ideal body weight. The two things that you're going to improve your overall health by going keto or carnivore is you're going to lower your insulin levels in your blood back to a very low normal level. And this protects you from hundreds of medical complications from heart attack to stroke to kidney failure to early dementia uh, to many, many other things. The second thing you're going to do is lower levels of chronic inappropriate inflammation in your body that you may not even be connecting with the diet that you're currently eating. Uh, and then also the, the, uh, the, the gain weight thing. So if you want to gain weight, there's two strategies for this. I know you, you work outside and you work hard, but if you want to gain muscle, then you're going to eat lots of meat and you're going to lift heavy weights in a manner that's going to lead to muscle hypertrophy or muscle growth. So working, I work on the farm for probably eight hours a day and I'm, I'm drenched with sweat when I come in, but that's not going to really build muscle because I'm not doing it in the proper manner. And so if you want to gain muscle, then you're going to lift heavy weights and eat lots of meat. If you want to gain fat, that's easy. Just eat more carbs. Uh, eat lots of highly processed carbohydrates in your diet and eat three meals a day with snacks in between, and you'll gain fat. So I hope this helps Clark and everyone else. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. So just something on the whole concept of proper human diet and, and, and original form of paleo nutrition. And there has been a, a lot of arguments counter to uh, what people like myself, uh, Dr. Barry, Thomas DeLore, uh, Rob, Rob Wolf, like tons of us out here have been saying that the traditional paleo diet was mostly meat. And that since they used the entirety of what was available and relied heavily on things like shellfish, there's actually quite, like shellfish have a lot of fat and frankly a lot of cholesterol. Look up how much cholesterol there is in an oyster, uh, specifically a non-cooked oyster that's eating, eaten raw or just steamed open, like uh, where none of the fat is cooked away and it's not wasted. And with no intention to back up that theory in in my recent like i've gone head deep into ancient american civilizations up until the advent of agriculture which seems to be a bit closer at least in north america than than we seem to have thought was required for civilizations to exist my podcast i did earlier this week on uh the civilization that existed at poverty point for a thousand years this is a millennial civilization of four to five thousand people living almost completely off the land while they did use some nut mast and things like that with the exception of the acorn um, you, you have nothing there with significant carbohydrate in it and their primary thing that most of these um, these you know ancient civilizations of North America lived on was shellfish and we think of shellfish now as being a marine species we, 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 we tend to have very short memories as people as to the things that we've screwed up. And our freshwater ecosystems were full of shellfish that we could eat before we polluted them and screwed them up and disrupted our ecosystems. And encampments where they found archaeological evidence of these people that lived three, four, five, six, seven, ten thousand years ago here are littered with the remains and piles of shellfish up into, like, where t today is Minnesota and Michigan through Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, 
parts of Florida that are not marine. The Carolinas in parts that are not marine. Virginia that is not marine. And so I think when Doc is telling you, like, this is what humans ate for the majority of our time on Earth, with the modern hominid now being dated somewhere around 300,000 years old, and, and being able to locate and identify successful, not hunter-gatherer groups, you know, not Iceman or something, like one guy they found in a, in a, in a uh, what do you call it, a... Uh, It's the word I'm looking for, man. A, a glacier, right? You know, you're talking about an entire, like the remnants of, of of what we can only call a city, an ancient city, and subsisting for a thousand years without growing any grain, without growing any even legumes. That's impressive, and it lends credence to that we mostly evolved eating animals of some sort or another. And it takes away this whole idea that man is not naturally a predator, which I disagree with, but I, we don't have to be. One does not have to be much of a predator to capture an oyster. And, and that seems to be one of the primary means by which we subsisted for the majority of our existence, shellfish that don't require much, or other small animals that don't require much more than stepping on them or pulling them out of something or clubbing them. Anyway, with that, let's move on. I've got another one here. And I will attest one more time, like I said last week, about people that are already at weight. Men especially, you get on keto, and the muscle tone you put on without lifting weights is is damn impressive. Next up, what about a leaky DeWalt cordless chainsaw? Tim the Toolman Cook on that. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here from toolmantim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Coming back at you to answer a couple of more questions for the expert council. So let's see how many we can get done and dive right in. Okay, so the first question comes from Classical Dad over on Float. He says, after watching both your videos on the DeWalt Pole Saw, awesome reviews by the way, I picked up one of these little beasts to help clear snap limbs and down trees after a storm. And the little guy worked great. Is it your experience that it leaks quite a bit of bar oil while cutting with it? Seems like most chains do but I was surprised there was enough oil to form droplets on the bottom of the saw while using it. Do you store yours full? I wiped mine down, emptied the bar oil tank for storage when I finished because I didn't want to come back to a mess on the floor. So, Classical Dad, it does seem to be an issue, uh, at least in my experience with the DeWalt cordless chainsaws. It seems to be a cordless chainsaw thing in general. Uh, I had much, I've had a lot more problems with the 60-volt cordless chainsaw, actually, and a uh, quick confession here, I actually had to send it back for warranty recently when the oiler actually died on it. So we're going to see how that works, but yes, it is a known issue. These things do tend to leak. I, I've had a little bit of luck, at least with the pole saw. I, I try not to empty it out when I'm in between uses because I use it quite a bit. So if I store it vertically, it seems to help a fair bit. My pole saw hasn't leaked a lot. Like I said, the 60-volt chainsaw did. Now, I have seen a hack or a fix online for it, which I keep planning on trying, haven't yet, but they said a big portion of the leakage is around the, the lid to the reservoir tank. So if you can get yourself a thicker O-ring to seal that up, it may just solve the issue. But yes, for whatever reason, these cordless saws do tend to leak oil quite a bit. So some people wrap them in a towel, some people put them somewhere that it doesn't matter if it spills a little bit, and if you're only going to use it once a year, yeah, drain it out so that you don't have any oil in it. But yes, it's been a problem for me, and according to the internet, 
a big solution for it can be to find an upgraded O-ring that'll help seal that off a little bit. So I hope that helps. Okay, and the second question comes from Jason over on Instagram. And he wants to know... Uh, some recommendations on footwear. Good brands, which styles for which season. I noticed your weed-eating pick. That uh, was the one where I was covered in grass, and you said I was using a light shoe. Both good and bad. Big boots get hot, heavy, doing chainsaw work. I'll put them on. If you could elaborate on safety gear in general and what you use, especially buy once, cry once items, that would be incredible. Thanks, Jason. Okay, Jason. So... I may not always be the person, I might be one of those people who is more like do as I say, not as I do. I tend to maybe neglect safety a little bit, and that is not a good idea. But first off, one thing I always wear is good safety eyewear. And for me, sun bothers me, I've got to have sunglasses. Now, I tend to, for the most part, just pick up a pair that fits me, because you've got to wear them, and if they're not comfortable, you're not going to wear them. You want that kind of forced compliance. And I'm really hard on sunglasses, so I tend not to buy expensive pairs, just something that covers all the way around the eyes so that stuff doesn't get up and underneath of them. I have recently picked up a pair of Crossfires uh, based on a recommendation from a community member. I'm going to test those out, and I will report back to you guys on that. Now, as far as hearing protection, there's two schools of thought here. Number one, of course, protect your ears. But number two, the best hearing protection is not needing it at all. So if you're running battery gear or something really quiet, you may not need it. Now, that's not always possible, especially dealing with heavy-duty gas gear and on gas uh, zero-turn mowers and that sort of thing. And what I love for that, and you guys have heard me talk about this in the past as well, is those 3M work tunes. They're awesome. They're noise-canceling. You put them on, they're so quiet, you can almost hear your own heart beating. But the best part about it is, is I can sit on the zero-turn mower and listen to my favorite audiobook or podcast without needing to crank the volume all the way up and hurt my ears. So it's great. You get the hearing protection. Plus, you get to use downtime or time that you normally wouldn't listen to something a little bit better. Gloves, I really like, a tip on gloves is they need to be snug. If they're loose and floppy, you're going to get them caught in things. You're going to have a bad day. You're going to have an accident. I buy bulk packs. I'll try to have links to most of these products for Jack in the description. But I like the thin, kind of elasticy type gloves with the nitro coating. It gives something to grab a hold of, to give you a good grip, which is really important, but the backsides of them breathe, which helps keep your hands cool. So I hope that helps. Uh, I look for a nice insulated leather glove in the wintertime, and then I use the spray weather coating. <laughs> I, uh, quick tip, I use a pair of uh, old tongs that my wife doesn't mind me using, and I hold out the gloves, and I give them each probably four or five good coats of the silicone weatherproofing spray. Helps a lot. Footwear, a good pair of leather tie-up boots for when you need them. Got to have something that ties up because, for me, ankle support is absolutely important. And, honestly, uh, something else that people don't always think about, especially when you're out weed whipping and that sort of thing, you got to protect your legs. And I've recently come across some cargo pants <laughs> on Amazon, which I absolutely love. They come in all kinds of different colors, which really doesn't matter, but they have a ton of pockets, which allows me to carry things... <laughs> You know, one of those things. But the best part is they're inexpensive, they seem really durable, and they've worked really well for me for work pants. So if you're looking for something like that, check them out. I'll throw a link in there for Jack as well. And not so much safety, but everyday carry. I have my MT knife around my neck. A hundred uses for that thing. So keep an eye out for that. And don't forget, of course, this is kind of in the same realm, but high-powered sunscreen 
And for me, a high level of DEET bug repellent. Not everybody loves it, but you got to have something when you run into bugs. And also a first aid kit for things like burns, cuts, and stings. So I hope that helps, guys. That got two questions in this week, so that's good. Don't forget to go by toolmantim.co to check out everything that there is to know about who I am and what I offer. Five videos a week, including the Talking Tools live stream every Sunday evening at 8 o'clock Mountain Time. I'd love for you guys to drop by, interact, and become part of the community there. And guys, thanks again. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I, I'm going to say I don't think this is specific to cordless saws, the leakage issue. Um, I think it is specific to the DeWalt, and I love DeWalt, but I own two cordless chainsaws. One is a pole saw. It's a very inexpensive, but very much a little workhorse made by Black & Decker. And I own a cordless Oregon 40-volt chainsaw that's self-sharpening. I was having trouble saying that. Uh, neither of those experiences any leakage problems. Now, if you were to take the Oregon and put it on a pole and put it in odd positions up in the air, might that change? I don't know. I would say this. I would rather have a chainsaw leak a little bit of chain and bar oil than not get the damn oil on the chain or the bar because uh, that's a real quick way to burn up a chain and a bar. And burning up a chain is one thing. They're an expendable item eventually. Anyway, burning up a chainsaw bar is an expensive proposition. So um, not that big a deal. I, I think my biggest thing would be if I had a saw like this that leaked a little bit and I didn't want to empty it, just make sure you put something under it to account for the leakage so it doesn't cause stains and problems. Uh, and otherwise, great advice from Tim. Now we have uh, some questions for Mr. Pugliano on self-directed IRAs for crypto, along with futures uh, trading as a form of investment. Hello, TSP. We have a couple financial questions. The first one comes from Jerry, and he says that he ran across a company that allows you to hold Bitcoin and a few other big crypto coins in a self-directed IRA. He wants to know if the company's legitimate. Well, Jerry, I don't want to mention the company name because I'm not familiar with them. They appear to be okay, but I don't know enough about them to give them any credence one way or the other, so I don't want to mention their name. What I would tell you is to do your homework, because this company isn't unique. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of other companies that do exactly the same thing, and maybe even more. There's no big magic to a self-directed IRA. The IRA is nothing more than a simplified trust that Congress created to allow individuals to save for their retirement. And there are very limited regulations or rules as to what you can invest in. In fact, as far as I know, the only two things that are specified that can't be held within an IRA are life insurance and collectibles. The life insurance makes sense because life insurance payouts are not taxable anyways, so you wouldn't want to hold that in your IRA. And then as far as collectibles, and this is really the gray area, because what do you define as a collectible? But that could get a little fuzzy. But I think the bottom line there is that Congress didn't want people investing in things like antiques and filling up their house with antiques and artwork on the walls and then calling that your retirement investment. And so other than life insurance or collectibles, as far as I know, you can own just about any other type of asset class in your IRA. So that would include things like real estate or ownership of a private company or physical gold or silver. Now that would be physical gold or silver in the form of a generic bullion or a generic coin that doesn't have numismatic value, right? Because if it was a rare coin with numismatic value, 
then it would be considered a collectible. And so crypto or any other type of investment class can theoretically be held within the IRA trust, but it all comes down to the details of it and managing the paperwork and the ownership, and that becomes the responsibility of the custodian. And so the reason that when you go down to your discount broker and you open up an IRA with, say, Charles Schwab or E-Trade, and they only let you own stocks or mutual funds or ETF or bonds within your IRA, that's because that's what they're in the custodial business of providing. It doesn't mean that you can't own other things in your IRA. It's just that the traditional brokerage houses are not going to be responsible to keep track and to monitor and to be the custodian of things that are off their balance sheet. And so if you want to have an alternative investment in your IRA that's not a traditional financial services type product like a stock or a mutual fund, then you have to go the route of having a self-directed retirement account where either you're your own custodian or work with another type of service provider that's the custodian of that account and they'll allow alternative investments like real estate, like physical gold, like crypto. I'll give Jack a link that appeared in Forbes magazine back in March. It does a pretty good job of describing the self-directed IRA and how it's basically structured around an LLC that you create. And then you, as the owner of that LLC within the IRA, have checkbook writing authority. And so the LLC that's owned by the IRA that you control has a business checking account. And from that account, you can purchase investable assets. That could be real estate, that could be crypto, that could be oil wells in West Texas. Since the account is self-directed, you can do whatever you want with it, as long as it's not buying life insurance or collectibles. But the important thing to remember is all the paperwork has to be maintained and documented, and that's why the account has to be set up properly, and you have to follow the proper custodial procedures. So there's no real magic It's just working with a legitimate, responsible company that's going to help you to form that structure and to make sure that you're maintaining the adequate records. So, Jerry, it really comes down to how much effort you want to put into investing in crypto in a retirement account and is it worth all that additional paperwork and procedure. What I'd have you consider is to be a little patient. Before long, I think you're going to find that it's commonplace at any of the big name discount brokers, where you'll easily be able to transact in the big crypto names, either directly or through some type of ETF or fund. The established financial institutions are not fighting cryptocurrency. They're simply just creating products and services and structures so they can profit from it. Now, our next question comes from Joe, and his question is about trading futures contracts. He says that, I'm interested in trading futures contracts versus traditional equities because of the leverage and favorable tax treatment. Well, Joe, you're correct. You've referenced the 60-40 rule where futures contracts are advantaged to taxes where 60% are treated as long-term capital gains and 40% are taxed at short-term rates. And this is regardless of how long the contract is held. So is that favorable tax treatment an advantage over traditional equities? Well, it is. Is it that big of a deal? You have to put that into a spreadsheet and work it out for yourself. What I would encourage you to look at is look at the total cost of trading. Don't just look at the tax side of it. Look at any additional fees that are going to be incurred and how much time and effort it's going to take on your part 
to develop the trades and to realize the profits. If you think you're skilled and qualified to do it, well, go out and give it a try. You don't have anything to lose but money. What I will caution you on is that when you're dealing with a futures contract, you're dealing with an investment that comes with an expiration date. So you not only have to get the direction of the price action correct, meaning you either have to know whether the price is going to go up or go down accurately, but since the contract expires at a given time, you also have to get that side of it correct as well. When you bring that time element into it, and especially when you're dealing with very short time frames, you can lose a lot of money very quickly. And as you mentioned, there's leverage involved. And so that leverage is a two-edged sword. It can work for you or against you. It means that you can invest a little bit of money to control a large asset amount, which can result in significantly high profits, but it can also work against you to where you lose a lot of money very quickly. So Joe, if you think you can do it, hey, go give it a try. Don't invest any more than you can afford to lose. Give it a shot for six months or so. Report back and let us know how it went for you. Well, hey, thanks so much for your investing questions. I always look forward to answering them. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. So I'm not countering anything John said, and I'm not saying that it's not legit to do a crypto IRA. I'm going to tell you why I haven't done it myself yet, because I don't know that it's clearly defined, and I haven't been able to find a place where government says this is okay, and it is not quite as clear as John maybe made it out to be, in my in my opinion, based on some things that I, at least I think I know. For instance, you can hold physical silver in a self-directed IRA. I think there's approved forms of the silver, though. Okay? So if that makes sense, there's, a, there's like, it's not all silver. And I'm not sure exactly how that breaks down because I don't really want to put silver in an IRA. The only reason I would do a self-directed IRA and buy silver would be if I had, if I wanted to make a, a buy on silver and the money that I wanted to use for it was already in an IRA or a 401k I could roll into an IRA. So the money was held hostage. And that would be the only way I would do it. So I haven't dug deeper into it. But I, I know that I see things like when you're looking at American Silver Eagles, it'll, it'll say, you know, IRA improved. So I'm not sure exactly. And then what is a collectible? Is, is Ethereum a collectible? Like, until the government says this is okay, and maybe they have. Maybe there's a letter somewhere where some agency has gone out on record and said, yes, this qualifies. I haven't seen that. And while I think it's a great idea, it makes me nervous to do so, to move in, into an IRA with crypto. And, and so my other side on this, I kind of look at it like the silver thing. Unless you plan on trading and you want to avoid the capital gains on trading, if the strategy you are uh, employing for cryptocurrency is a buy-and-hold strategy – there's not much benefit to putting it in an IRA. In fact, there's a lot to lose and not much to gain. You've now made it illiquid without penalty. So there's now going to be a penalty to pull it back out, though you do have with a Roth, the original contribution should be removable. But what happens when we start playing with crypto in this? I don't know. See, this, these are I don't like unknowns. Conversely, if the strategy with crypto is buy and hold, I've tried to explain this, and people actually object to it, and but based on absolutely nothing. If you buy $1,000 worth of crypto a month, 
thousand, just say Bitcoin, right? Just to make this simple, you buy a thousand dollars of Bitcoin to dollar cost average monthly, and every month you buy a thousand dollars worth of crypto. And so for the next, you know, five years you do this, and you you put sixty thousand dollars of U.S. dollars into crypto, and Bitcoin does really well for you over that five year period. And now you're looking at your crypto balance. And you don't have $60,000 worth of Bitcoin. You have $600,000 worth of Bitcoin. You don't owe any tax. This is really important. It's one of the real advantages for, a, for the buy and hold person when it comes to cryptocurrency. And to me, buy and hold is really something for Bitcoin because I think that's like anything else you do it with, I don't think you have as much stability as you do with Bitcoin. If you're thinking... 5, 10, 20, 30 years, retirement age, etc. Um, with this. So until you sell it, you don't owe anything on it. And then if you retired and you had $2 million worth of Bitcoin, and, you, and, and for whatever reason you decided the way you were going to get the money is actually to convert it to dollars and sell it. And if you sold off uh, $40,000 a year, to augment your retirement every year until it was gone, which would be quite a while, you'd only pay income tax on the $40,000 sold. Now, you would pay it based on, in that type of setup, first in, first out. So the stuff you bought first that had the greatest gains is probably what you'd pay the most tax on. But it's not a taxable entity because it sits there and increases in value. To me, the most valuable things about something like a Roth IRA is that I can execute trades or I can receive dividends or in the case of real estate I can have rental income all of which is not taxable because it's a gain inside the investment vehicle. So unless the gain creates a tax consequence I don't get much by putting it in there. So just consider that as you make these decisions. Next up, what if you stored a vehicle for a really long time and there's some really, really old gas in it and you're thinking, I know, I'll just, uh, I'll just put, you know, 10 gallons of new gas in it and mix it with the old gas and, and run it out and put a little fuel system cleaner in it and after one tank, there'll be new gas. But somebody thought they were doing you a favor and that somebody filled the tank all the way to the top and it's been there a long time. What do we do now? Derek Monpietro will tell us. Hey, TSP listeners, Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Nick in Mongolia has got a car question, so let's get into it. What is your recommendation for a vehicle with a gas tank full of very old gas, which is about two years old, that we want to start using again late this summer? Details. I have a 2006 Honda CRV that our family keeps in the U.S. with my parents most of the year while we live overseas. To make a long story short, because of the pandemic, we have been stuck overseas and haven't been able to do a U.S. visit and thus make use of our car for a very long time. I normally keep just a small amount in the tank, add fresh gas in whenever we come back months later. But my stepdad, with the best of intentions, in late 2019, filled our gas tank, so adding fresh gas doesn't seem to be an option. If it ever even was, this gas is old. So what is your best course of action here? Can I just siphon all the old gas and put in fresh gas, maybe using a dry gas additive? Or will this require the care of a mechanic? Thanks for your help. All right, Nick. A couple weeks ago, I did a segment on prepping a vehicle for long-term storage. So this would have been the best preventative measure. And you can go back a couple of weeks to find that podcast. So this is basically what happens when we didn't take the proper preventative actions. And so now we've got a vehicle, like Nick says, we got a tank full of bad gas. What do we do to correct the situation? First step is I'd probably check the battery charge. I would maybe even remove the battery and get it on a charger. So that way we're dealing with a completely topped-off battery. And we're not going to kill it if it's somewhere 
in a middle state of charge. So we want to make sure we got 100% battery before we start anything. While that's happening, siphoning the gas is probably the easiest and quickest method to correct this. So we're going to need a couple of cans. I doubt that thing's got more than like a 15 to 20 gallon size tank. So a couple of cans, siphon tube. Now here's one of the big problems, and I don't know specifically on the CRV, but some vehicles have an anti-siphon valve. So basically it's going to block the tube as you're trying to put it in the gas filler. Yeah. I don't know which ones they are, but so worst case scenario, if this happens, you're going to have to find where the filler net goes and possibly remove it. That's a can of worms. You know, the clamp could be stuck and rusted in place, or you might not have enough wiggle room with the tube where if, even if you can get the clamp off where you can pull it off of the filler on the gas tank itself, you know, it might be very close. In other words, in order to get that filler out, you're going to have to remove the entire filler neck or drop the gas tank to create enough space to separate the two. So I'm not quite sure on this vehicle, but that might be if we can't get the siphon in there. If you can, great. Empty it out. Give that gas to somebody that can possibly use that to burn or get it to the local town. Sometimes they'll take waste fuel like that. Load it up with some fresh gas. Now, if this is all you're capable of doing, maybe cycle the key a few times. That will try to circulate the fuel up into the engine and give her hell. Now, if you have the mechanical ability, the next step would be to maybe crack the fuel line up on the engine so that way we can push the new fuel up to the engine to the injection system so this would involve finding the feed line which is usually a metal tube going up to where the injectors are cracking that line open putting that into a bucket or a cup or something like that some vehicles will have a Schrader valve so it kind of looks like a tire fill valve on the fuel rail itself where the injectors are you can get a specialty fitting on that, or you can actually just remove the Schrader valve just like you would on a tire. And then you can put a tube on that. And so what we want to do is get the electric fuel pump running. So there's going to be a relay somewhere in the fuse box. And you want to look this up. So there's going to be a control side of the relay, and then there's going to be the fuel pump side. So we want the fuel pump side, which usually the pins are in a T shape. And if you jumper that with a paper clip, that's going to get the fuel pump to run. While we're doing that, we're pushing fresh gas up to the injectors. We're pushing all the old stuff out. And once you got some clean, good-looking fuel up there, you can button everything back up, fire the car right up. So that's going to be like the worst-case scenario if putting fresh gas in doesn't really help the situation because it's having a hard time getting that up to the engine. It might just run rough for a while. So if you go with option one, you know, it'll smooth out, take it down the road, be easy on it. It'll get that fresh gas in eventually, and you should be all set. Now, some of this for the average guy is a little easier said than done. You know, pinning out the backside of a relay and figuring out which pins are the actual fuel pump circuit and jumpering them. You could jumper the wrong side and potentially blow the ECM or something like that. So I wouldn't recommend doing that to somebody that feels uncomfortable with electricity or doing something like that. So the worst case scenario is we got to leave the fuel in the vehicle. Now... It might run rough. It might not like it. It might not run at all. So that might just be a simple matter of seeing what happens. Take it down the road. See if it goes. If it doesn't, you got to rectify the situation. It just simply won't run on the old gas. That's going to be like the absolute worst case scenario. And realistically, you're probably not going to damage anything. As long as you're not trying to get this thing up doing 80 miles an hour on, on the bad gas and it's misfiring or something like that, that can cause problems. That can ruin a catalytic converter if it's misfiring. The engine's going to run really poorly. You probably don't want to do that. But if it just sputters for a little bit and then straightens up and runs smooth, it's probably just getting rid of that old gas that's up near the engine. 
and that's that's probably fine. I don't think I would waste any time with the dry gas additive. That's just basically there to absorb any additional moisture that's in the tank. And since there was a full tank of fuel in there, you probably don't have much condensation. It's really just that the gas has been sitting for so long that it's just really gone stale. It's not like it's contaminated. You know, you don't have debris and water in there. It's just that it sat for a while, and now it's just not doing its job. So I think additives are probably not the best avenue to go down. All right, Nick. Good luck with the CRV. Again, siphon tube, couple of gas cans, empty it out, get rid of the old gas, fill it up with some fresh, see what happens, kick it down the road. There's a solid chance that that's all you're going to really need to do, and you really don't need to hire a mechanic or pay any kind of money to get that resolved. So hope that steers you in the right direction. If you're looking for an affordable DC power supply solution, check out affordabledcgenerators.com. As always, thank you very much for the questions. Take care, guys. Yeah, I'm just going to add that I have not seen a vehicle made in the last 20 years, probably longer, that you can siphon reliably. Um, and the basically the way that they're set up, it's really difficult to get past the valve that prevents it. it it's, it's, it's almost not doable. And it's because, I mean, I remember back in the 80s that, you know, Having someone steal gas from a car was pretty common. I mean, it was a pretty common scam that you know some of the lower level people of a small town would do is run around siphoning gas all the time, uh, and uh, you know a piece of garden hose and shove it in. And you, you know if you got a especially in the eighties, you had a lot of seventies cars, and they were pretty much a tube went straight to the bottom of the tank, and it was no trouble at all to get you know, four or five gallons of, of gas relatively quickly out of a car. And if it was parked somewhere where the person doing it was able to easily, like, you know, a lot of times back then cars had them behind, like, a license plate. So if that car was backed in somewhere and kind of hidden, like, it would be the kind of thing where people would do it. And, they, and it's not their gas, so they don't care. They would leave it behind, and maybe half the gas ended up on the ground after the can was full, and they'd come back later to get it. And a lot of times they would even leave the freaking hose in the car. a piece of garden hose. They probably stole that, too. So car manufacturers knee-jerked and put these anti-siphoning things in, and they made no allowance for the fact that you might legitimately want to do this. And I, I honestly think um, modern vehicle manufacturers should be looking at ways to say, oh, this fuel needs to come out. The majority of times when this needs to happen, what ends up is that vehicle needs to go up on a lift, have the tank dropped, and have it drained. That's the majority of times that's what needs to happen to get it done. So anyway, you can try all the stuff Derek said as well, and, and maybe one of those solutions will work for you. But I, I'm betting you're going to get almost nothing out by siphoning. Uh, and next up, what about building pasture rapidly? I recently answered a question about this for someone on an episode of Miyagi Mornings. It was on the recap episode, I think, two weeks ago as well on the audio podcast. But I was like, I know somebody that knows a hell of a lot more than me about this, and his name's Darby Simpson. And here he is to uh, to add to what you can do to rapidly build your pasture with rotational grazing of cattle. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life back to answer another TSBC Expert Council question. This is actually a follow-up to a segment that Jack did uh, in the last week or two, depending on when you're listening to this, on Miyagi Mornings, episode number 129, which is about 20 minutes long. You really ought to listen to that first so that this will make complete sense. There's a lot packed into this, so we're going to fly. 
Some additional information came in from John in central Pennsylvania near Gettysburg uh, that uh, adds a lot to the context that Jack did not have when he answered his part of this on Miyagi Mornings. So John uh, goes on to tell us that uh, his actual question should have been, what's the best way to quickly improve pasture while grazing? He enjoyed what Jack gave him. Uh, he also wants to know, you know, what kind of high protein should he be growing throughout the grazing portion of the year? He doesn't want to do too much trial and error if he can expedite the process. Uh, he also says that his soil type is clay, the kind that holds water when it rains and turns up to concrete when it dries up. John, I'm in the same boat being in central Indiana. It's very flat, so he has a lot of standing water when it rains. Same here. Um, with that said, how can I get pasture through the winter if it gets snow covered, everything goes dormant? Would hay be fine for that situation? Fencing is done. He's only had steers on there for seven months. Uh, he also has four goats and four sheep. Now, John, one thing I'm missing here is acreage, but that's okay. We're going to roll through this anyway. So you talk about uh, grazing ahead of or behind with your goats and your sheep. No, 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 no. If you're crazy enough to put all the ruminants out there, put them all out in one big herd because they actually eat different stuff. So they'll actually graze everything down better. They eat from opposite ends of the spectrum. So that's number one. Number two, you got to be doing a true rotational grazing system. The animals will improve the ground, but they'll only improve it so much, maybe. There's a lot of context that goes into that. Uh, but you got to be moving them basically every day. Uh, so you can watch some of, some of our stuff at grassfedlife.co. I've got a few YouTube videos out there with Grassfed Life. That shows how we do rotational grazing with step-in posts and reels that you would get from a company like Ken Cove. I um, uh, strongly recommend that company. They're actually based out of Pennsylvania, so they'll get stuff to you quick. I like the O'Brien geared reels and step-in posts. Yes, they cost a lot of money. That's fine. How to improve this fast. If you want to spread seed like Jack talked about, where you're just broadcasting it and letting the cows trample it in, You can do that. It's okay. Now, with with the climate that we're in, our climates are basically the same. So you, you got the right guy for this question. We're just a couple of states apart. Um, if you were going to do that with, say, clover, you'd want to actually probably do what's called frost seeding. You'd actually do it in February or maybe early March. But you want when that freezing thawing action is taking uh, taking place, it'll actually pull that seed into the ground. Most guys, though, if you're going to go to the trouble to just broadcast and not drill it in, and I would recommend drilling, I'll get to that in a second, you're going to want to run a cultipacker over that to actually get good ground contact with that seed into that moist soil. It cannot be dry. You got to do this at the right time of the year. A cultipacker is just a, a fancy gizmo you pull behind a tractor that basically just kind of you know, rolls across the ground like a disc, but it doesn't cut the ground. It just packs that seed down into the seed bed. It will also help to better level out the ground. Now, that being said, I would still use a no-till drill. It cuts the ground ever so slightly, like a half of an inch, and drops the seeds into that little trench, and then it has a little cul-de-packer wheel on the back end that actually closes that trench up. And that is going to be the best way to plant stuff and not mess around with trial and error. I've done the trial and error stuff. Frankly, it didn't work that good. I mean, you just kind of got to get lucky. Now, if you want to go all out, I'd say, hey, you got fence, you got grazing uh, ruminants. Dude, apply for an NRCS grant. Rip this crap up because my assumption is that based on what you said, that Jack re, uh, recovered in his segment, you got a lot of fescue out there. 
And fescue's here to stay, man. And like it will choke everything else out. Should it be a part of your pasture plan? Absolutely. Super drought tolerant. Uh, it turns into solid carbohydrates in the fall when it gets cold and the animals pack on the weight with it. But if it's like taken over, it's going to be really hard to establish other stuff. Uh, particularly, you know, we're talking about perennials. You can try no-till drilling some stuff in. You might have decent success without seeing your place in person. Like it's really hard to tell you what's going to work best. I would contact the NRCS and see if perhaps you could get a grant to just replant the whole thing. If nothing else, you could also get a grant to just drill in some new grasses and clovers and alfalfas and things of that nature with a no-till drill that they can probably help get you connected with and you can rent or borrow a tractor from a neighbor. It's re it sounds like a lot and there's some stuff to it. We cover it in our videos and our courses, it, but it's really not that hard. And like the NRCS will help you get the resources you need to do this properly. Now, if you want to go about trying to do some quick grazing stuff, um, you know, to just build soil, to uh, build uh, carbon. Okay, now we're talking about annuals. Okay, nothing wrong with using some annuals. I like using like pearl millet and a dwarf variety of Sudan grass. I've I've done a mix of those in the past spectacular man stuff grows like crazy and animals love it well at least cows love it i don't mess with sheep and goats um I, i just goats and me are just not compatible um that's a story for another day but cows love that and they they do trample a lot of it and you're building a lot of carbon but those seeds aren't cheap either and It's an expensive proposition, and you only get one grazing season out of it. What I've done here with those annuals, however, is like an old row crop field that I took, which was burned out. Um, and we, we've done videos on this, too. Um, and specifically, they're in our grass-fed life insider package, which is like seriously stupid cheap, like 20-some bucks. But anyway, um, we tilled all that old field up and dissed it because it was like, concrete like you said and i did annuals for a couple of years just to get some tilth to the soil and that that was the last mix i did was that sudan grass and and millet it was amazing and then i went back with my nrcs grant and i planted perennials after we dissed all that up and leveled that that uh, that planting bed we'd had the cows out there we had the manure we had the urine um you know it man it's beautiful it's a beautiful grazing area now Do you need to do that? I don't know. I don't know how invasive your fescue is, and that's really what this boils down to. I, you, If you want to experiment with broadcasting in front of the animals and letting them trample it and see how it works, do it on a small section. Uh, try that first. Now, uh, Jack talked a lot about hay. I'm not anti-hay. Uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking a couple of times with Greg Judy, and he tells me how wrong I am, and I tell him how right it is for me to actually make hay on my farm and feed hay on my farm. If you can buy hay in cheaply, like, I don't have a problem with it. I think that's what you do in the winter. But move it around. I've got portable hay feeders. We move them around. And we're spreading the manure. We're, we're, we're spreading the urine. We're spreading the, the leftover hay litter. And it really does improve the pasture. I would tell you to do, like, kind of a, if you've got a bit of a, 
quasi-sacrificial area. That's where I would do that your first winter. That takes a lot of playing around. And it's hard. Like you you got to have a tractor. you got to be able to move these feeders. you got to be able to put round bales in there. Uh, if you're doing square bales, I think you got too many animals for square bales. You really need round bales, but that means you need a 50-horse tractor. There's a lot that goes into that. Um, but I've got the same conditions here, and I'm telling you, man, clay, like – Clay soil, particularly if it's compacted, like you need to drill stuff into it, no matter what we're talking about, perennials, annuals, whatever. See if you can get some free money, get some of your tax dollars back from the NRCS. Uh, we've, we've got a course on that, too, on just how to write grants and get money literally for free. And I've talked about that ad nauseum. I'm not going to cover it again here. There are really are no strings attached. It really is free money. And it's it's really good. I make use of it because I want as many of my dollars back as humanly possible. So anyway, John, whew, that was a lightning round. Again, if you are listening to this and you have not listened to Miyagi Mornings, number 129, you probably want to listen to that first because then this will all make sense. So John, I hope that you found that helpful. Uh, for anybody else that wants a question answered, Shoot it to me, Darby at grassfedlife.co, and I will try and answer it in a segment just like this in less than 10 minutes. Also, be sure and check out all the resources we have at grassfedlife.co. As always, thanks for your questions. Everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care. Next up, we have old Doc Bones on alopecia areata and treating it with unconventional methods. Well, maybe. And what is alopecia areata, if I said it right? Bones will tell you. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness, plus the author of the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert council comes from Dan, who writes, Is comfrey a potential treatment for alopecia areata? The local doctor wants to inject steroids into my head. It doesn't seem like a good idea. Thanks, Dan from Connecticut. Shorten to the point, Dan, just like I like it. Dan, alopecia areata is a common autoimmune disorder that often results in unpredictable hair loss. Autoimmune disorders occur when your body's natural defenses go haywire and attack parts of itself. It happens more often than you think. In the United States alone, alopecia affects almost 7 million people. The majority are under 30 years of age. In most, hair falls out in small patches about the size of a quarter. In a minority, it can be much worse, sometimes leading to the complete loss of hair on the scalp or rarely the entire body. Alopecia areata often develops suddenly over the course of a few days. The condition occurs when white blood cells involved in protection against infection and other issues attack the cells in hair follicles, causing them to shrink and dramatically slow down hair production. It's unknown exactly what causes the body's immune system to target hair follicles in this way. It appears that genetics, your genetics, are a factor as alopecia areata is more likely to occur in a person who has a close family member with the problem. It doesn't have to be alopecia, though. Other research has shown that many people have a personal or family history of other types of immune disorders, such as allergic dermatitis, autoimmune thyroiditis, and vitiligo, a condition characterized by a severe loss of pigment in the skin. Despite what many people think, there's actually little scientific evidence to support the view that alopecia areata is caused by stress. That actually surprised me. You'd think it'd be a factor. 
Alopecia areata does not directly make people sick, nor is it contagious or decrease the life expectancy. It can, however, be very difficult to adapt to emotionally. For many people, alopecia areata is a traumatic disease that warrants treatment addressing not only the physical, but the emotional aspect of hair loss. There are even support groups to help people cope. As for treatment, there's currently no cure for alopecia areata, although there are some forms of conventional treatment suggested by doctors to help hair regrow more quickly. You've been recommended one of these, Dan, cortisone injections. These are powerful drugs that suppress the immune system and decrease inflammation. They're injected into your scalp superficially. Now, honestly, whether they help or not is actually a matter of some controversy. A less drastic version would be corticosteroid creams like clobetazole or fluosinonide or maybe oral therapy. As the absorption is less than with many injections, they take longer to produce results. Other medications that can be prescribed that either promote hair growth or affect the immune system include minoxidil, also known as Rogaine. Although these promote hair growth, they won't prevent the development of new bald patches. The use of photochemotherapy, a combination of skin creams and UVA light, is supported by some studies, maybe an alternative to more invasive therapies. Sunscreen, head coverings to protect from cold and sun, and glasses, especially if the eyelashes are missing, are recommended to prevent damage to sensitive skin. In terms of natural remedies, Dan, I don't see a lot of scientific evidence for comfrey as an effective treatment for alopecia areata, and it can be dangerous if applied to broken skin. Preliminary research in animals, however, has found that quercetin, a naturally occurring bioflavonoid found in fruits and vegetables, can protect against the development of alopecia areata and also effectively treat existing hair loss. There are some that recommend other things like rubbing capsaicin cream, onion or garlic gel or juice, cooled green tea, almond oil, rosemary oil, honey or coconut milk into the scalp. While none of these are likely to cause harm, their effectiveness is at best supported only by small studies. Worth a shot, but more needs to be done before they can be deemed effective against alopecia. A small ray of light, Dan. Although there's no known cure, people with alopecia areata who have only a few patches of hair loss often experience a spontaneous full recovery without the need for treatment. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you believe in our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, some one-of-a-kind, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Just mine on that, being someone that's worked with Comfrey in a variety of ways, I don't know that it would be helpful at all. I, I As much as I'm a fan, uh, understanding that it's basically... A, uh, a, a, a a dermal regenerator. It, it, it helps to regenerate skin and human tissue. I don't know that that's going to translate to helping to to, to grow hair. I, I I don't I don't think it's going to work that way. But I don't know that it would hurt either. I, I you know. So anyway, I want to talk about our quote of the day today to wrap up. Andrew Jackson said, "I've always been afraid of banks." And that sounds like he's afraid of a bank, like he's got bankophobia. And you know, like, come on, Andrew, we're going in the bank. No, man, I'm scared. They might lock me in the vault or something. It's not what he meant at all. What Andrew Jackson meant when he was afraid of banks, he meant he was afraid of what banks could do to a country, what banks could do to free people. Understanding that banks had the ability to create 
money. Even at that time, even during the time of a gold standard, that banks had the ability to manipulate a society. That banks could influence politics and the lives of men at a level that government never could. That banks were to be feared, not because they are so powerful, because of what their power enables them to do. That they were the dark side. And that's why Andrew Jackson went out of his way to destroy and kill the national banking system. To free the nation from the grip of the bankers. That's why they tried to kill them. It didn't work. And that's why everything was done to reinstate the national bank system, which eventually became the Federal Reserve, you know, uh, after, after he was gone. And that's why the country was actually pushed intentionally into a recession, really more of a depression, during the Jackson administration by the banks themselves as a way of fighting back. Jackson also paid off the national debt, and we were, we were basically pushed by the banking system and by the oligarchs of the day into a depression to, to, to send a message like you can't be prosperous without being in debt as a nation, which is preposterous. It's absolutely preposterous. And people still spout this today. From mainstream eco economists to, uh, to the people on talk radio who have no idea what they're talking about, that it's bad to pay off the national debt. Keeping it in check, that's okay. But what does that even mean when we're printing three, four, five, six trillion new dollars a year now? What does that even mean to keep it in check? There is no keeping it in check. And this is why I think old Hickory, That was another name for Andrew Jackson for those that have never cracked a book on him. Old Hickory, I think he would have liked cryptocurrency. I really do. I don't think he would have understood it, obviously. He didn't have computers. They didn't even have a calculator back then. But I think he would have. Because what I think that cryptocurrency, and specifically Bitcoin, does, there's a big the phrase that's popular among Bitcoiners, be your own bank. If you hold Bitcoin in a non-custodial wallet. I mean, you have the keys, right? Not your keys, not your coins. You have the keys. So they are your coins, and they're not anybody else's. You're your own bank. Maybe, sort of, kind of. But banks do provide valid services. And that's what they're trying to, to say to do when it comes to holding something like Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or you know a privacy coin like Pirate Chain or Monero or any crypto, Ethereum, you name it. That by holding that currency, you can execute payments, you can receive money, you can do all the things that we think of needing a bank for. But what about things like loans? That's all we have, you know, options for that now and more and more being developed. There's a lot of leverage that can come from the banking system that's not necessarily high-risk leverage. Debt is leverage in of itself. I, one of my tenets of modern survivalism is debt is cancer. And I just say it generically as debt is cancer because when I say debt, the average person thinks, you know, credit cards, car loans, and things like that. I do not believe that all debt is cancer. I believe that if you can knowingly put money to work for something that has a you know, a, a, a high probability or even a guaranteed rate of return higher than the cost of the money itself, that debt is actually the tool of the wealthy. And when I look at what's being done specifically with 
the Lightning Network in Bitcoin and the fact that anybody can run a Lightning node. And now that I actually understand, which I didn't for a long time, I always thought it was an interesting thing, but I didn't really understand what Lightning was. You know, I didn't understand that Lightning is an open network that anybody can run a node on, that anybody can build a wallet for. It, use, it allows you to use Bitcoin, but it doesn't have to be Bitcoin. We can actually create things on Lightning that will swap currencies into other currencies, including like Bitcoin into dollars or dollars into Bitcoin and Bitcoin over to Europe and then Bitcoin into euros, that that can be done as well. Now you're talking about getting rid of the banking system. Even if the world doesn't adopt Bitcoin, you have Bitcoin the asset and Bitcoin the network. And then you layer onto layer one, which is Bitcoin, layer two, that which is lightning. And now we're building layer three. And I'm starting to realize something. I want you to think about it this way. Be your own banker. Not be your own bank. Be your own banker. A banker is the guy that owns the bank. And profits from the bank's operation. You, when you say be your own bank, that means you, you're, you're holding your own money in your own custody. And you're able to execute payments and receive payments in and out of it. Great. That's your own bank. Your own banker is providing services to others. A community, straight-up customers, what have you. If, if I got the ten wealthiest people that listen to this show together on an idea and we all cashed in every penny we had and put it into a giant pile and said we are going to create the first TSP bank and we're going to be in the banking business in the United States like you know I, Frost National Bank or whatever we wouldn't even come close to clearing the threshold we could not set up a bank in the banking system with the regulations and the cost we couldn't do it The barrier to entry is such that it's a billionaire's billionaire's club only, and you got to be a real billionaire, not like a you know a baby billionaire that just got one billion dollars. That's child's play in this world. You got to have billions behind you to open a bank, but with some coding ability and knowledge, you can open your own payments system in the world of cryptocurrency today. Not just be a participant. You can literally build it. And most of us won't. I'm not going to. The fact that I could is the important thing. The fact that I could is the important thing because people will. It's interesting to me that as anarchists, we think so much about the value of competition. If there's enough competition in any space, the problems will take care of themselves, mostly. No one ever thinks of that being utopia, just that if I have lots of choices, everybody has to do better because everybody has to compete for my business. And inside our world today, especially in the world of banking, we have created the illusion of choice. It's not much different than cable television. Look, I have 250 channels. No, you have six networks. You have six entertainment networks. The channels are irrelevant. You have six entertainment, entertainment networks. You actually have, you're closer to a monopoly in banking than you are in entertainment. At least there's six real networks. All of the banks in this country are either part of the Federal Reserve, if they're the large banks, or they're the bitches of the banks that are part of the Federal Reserve, i.e. the Fed rules all, and the banks run the Fed, and the Fed runs the banks. 
When you do business with a bank in this country, whether you like it or not, I don't care if it's your, your, your friendly neighborhood credit union, you're doing business with the Federal Reserve. Not just because you're in dollars, but because you're in their system through which they manage, expand, create, and contract the inventory and the quantity of dollars. We are entering a new phase in crypto. If what we just went through in the first 10 years, the first real 10 years, it's a little older than that, but it's really 10 years, was crypto 1.0, we're looking at the dawning of crypto 2.0 right now. And the things that will emerge will be analogous to the Internet. People say like the, the, the blockchain is the new Internet. I think Bitcoin is the new Internet. More and more, I become more and more a maximalist every day. The more I learn, the more I've educated myself, the more I've turned away from my misconceptions and said, let me listen to the argument of these people that say I'm wrong. The more I've found that what they say makes sense. And this is what I mean by that. The first 10 years of the Internet went from the early 90s into the early aughts, the early 2000s, right? And the Internet kind of came into its own as a thing where enough people had it that you could do something with it and it mattered. We had early search engines. Many of them are dead today. We had the first rendition of Google, though. We had Yahoo when it was a directory. We had Ask Jeeves and things like that. We had early message boards. Most, the most popular ones were part of something called AOL that a person who's like 24 years old today doesn't even know what that was. You've got mail. That thing. And it had to become a thing that people had enough familiarity with before people started really building on top of the internet. Layer one is the connections. Layer two was, what can we do with them? Layer three was, now how do we assemble those things? And then we had things like, you know, the real internet forums, like simple machines and stuff like that, the RSS-driven forums, PHP database-driven forums. We got things where we could actually play games online where we were playing against people around the world. Social media sites became dominant, like Facebook and Twitter. And today, if you tell somebody that the next 10 years of the Internet will, will involve creating technologies to run on top of the second layer, that, that dominant like social media interactive gaming layer, like we're going to build another layer of thing on there, nobody goes, oh, well, that's not going to happen. It's like, I can't wait to see what it is. That's what's happening with crypto right now. And that's the next layer to me is an entire new banking layer and a banking layer with hundreds or thousands of unregulated options. And you can say they're going to regulate it. They're going to regulate it. They're going good effing luck. Every day, more and more things are developed and built to the point where you can't say we're not allowed. And we need to stop even thinking about what they'll let you do. No one has ever gained a bit of freedom in the world by asking permission first. Look at what has already happened in your, in, in the last, I would say your lifetime, but most of you, in the last 15 years. Last 15, 20 years. Think about other technologies built on top of this. Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. 
These are technologies that if you said to somebody in, in 2000, well, we had the Internet. I mean, honestly, we had all everything you really needed to do it with was there. You see, here's what's going to happen. You'll be able to own a house that you'll be having a website You can rent it out like a hotel. There'll even be people who will clean it for you. That that'll be their only business is cleaning houses for this. There'll be a website that almost everybody in the world will know about. It'll be called Airbnb. You're like, what the hell is an Airbnb? And you'll be able to rent your house out. And, and, and anybody that was informed about how the hotel industry and short-term rentals and regulations work would have said, oh, you can't do that. They won't let you. When, when Uber came out, they even tried to shut it down. And anybody, if you would have pitched it as an idea, they would have said, hey, you'll never do that. The taxi lobbyists won't let you. Now you can get a dog sitter on a website called Rover that works just like Airbnb. And that's not even new. You can get a nanny on a website. I don't remember what it's called, but you can basically get a vetted, background-checked, babysitter nanny on a website that's basically the Airbnb of child care. Do you understand this layered approach? And do you understand that we need to be patient and at the same time be visionary? I'm telling you, the world in 2030 is not the world that they have planned for you in the Great Reset, unless you let it be. The world is going to be ripe with opportunity for those that dare to seize it, that dare to take it, and to those that are not afraid of something that they don't understand and willing to learn more about of it. Yeah, I have always been afraid of banks. Andrew Jackson and Jack Spierko. The difference is Andrew Jackson didn't live long enough to see a world where we no longer had to be afraid of them. I'm no longer afraid of the banks. I look forward to watching them writhe around and suffer mercilessly as technology renders them irrelevant, at least to anybody who wishes to make them so. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Here's what I've got for you today on the item of the day. Remember, you can always help support this show and the work that we do just by starting your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy. And you can also always find there my item of the day reviews. Everything I've ever reviewed is alphabetically organized by category. And today, I've been asked a lot lately about kind of my go-to gardening tools And basically, I have two go-to gardening tools. Another, and the other one's on uh, T-Spatch. You can find it under gardening. It's, it's the A.M. Leonard trowel, and it's a solid aluminum trowel, little hand trowel, and my Turkish-made folding, harvesting, and pruning knife. And that's the item of the day-to-day. -day. That little knife, I have sold hundreds and hundreds of these things now. I've never heard a complaint about them, except they, they sell out all the time. I noticed they're in inventory again today, so uh, I'm bringing it around. This is a saw or a pruning knife that, that is kind of like a, a grass saw, I guess you'd say. It's um, it's used in Turkey, and it, they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years in the exact same design as these things. It has kind of a back-cut tooth pattern, and it's designed for pruning grapevines and berry bushes, where it opens like a big pocket knife, 
and you grab hold of the, 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 the part of the vine you want to, to pull off, and it's not like you saw back and forth. It's designed to be a pull-back-only direction cut. So you lay the blade on, you pull back, and it cuts right through the size of the material it's designed to cut through. Well, it also does this a lot like a rice knife. So when it comes to things like uh, cutting out grass and weeds and stuff like that, and I'm a big believer that a lot of times pulling a weed only makes your problems worse. If it's an easy-to-pull-out weed, yeah, pull it. But a lot of like when grasses and stuff like that, if you just keep cutting it off, you're making mulch. You have a symbiotic relationship between the roots. And if that, that, that weed has come up and it's intertangled in the root of, let's say, my pepper plant, and I yank it out, I'm disturbing the pepper's roots as well. Well, what I really want to do is disadvantage the competitor to the advantage of the one that I want to do well. And I keep that symbiosis going on. And by having a tool that doesn't chop... Like a, like a straight blade tool that's like a chopping tool, a couple things happen. One, I don't accidentally cut down the plant that I don't want to kill. Two, I don't accidentally cut my finger. If you touch your finger with this, you feel it. If you start to move it backwards, you're going to stop. At least I hope you will, unless you're a special child. Um, check this thing out. Again, they're made by a company called Glittering Bazaar. They're imported from Turkey. They're about 20 bucks. I bet you in Turkey they're five dollars at a store, like on, on the, like at a, a you know a, a trading bazaar or something like that. That's probably what they got the name from them for. Uh, but over here in the United States, there is literally a single source of them. I have not. I've looked for them because when they sell out, people ask about them. I can't find them anywhere. But this one vendor on Amazon, they sell out regularly. I run them. Uh, you know when they come back, and they tend to sell out pretty quick whenever I run them. Uh, usually when these come in stock and I put out uh, them as an item of the day, that next day or two over the couple-day period, they'll sell somewhere around 100 through this audience because I see the I don't see who buys, but I see the numbers. And usually it's about that time where all of a sudden they're currently no longer available. So if you've been wanting one of these the last couple of times I brought it around, I would get yourself one now, and you too will find it to be a go-to tool. My write-up on it is pretty extensive, lots of uh, photographs and videos and everything. It's just that great of a tool. It's something that simple that I would put as much effort as I have uh, into reviewing it for you. And I think that in a garden trowel is 90% of what I do in the garden. When it comes to like pitchforks and larger shovels and all, that's like when I'm making a brand new bed or I'm turning compost or something like that. Day-to-day -day use in the garden, that's, that's pretty much all I do. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Three Doors Down. Um, I think Three Doors Down and Survivor have something in common, even though they're dramatically different sounds from dramatically different times, and that I think a band can become underrated based on an association with the thing. And, of course, um, Three Doors Down uh, did the song Let Me Be Myself, which became kind of a jingle for Geico. And a lot of people, as soon as they hear Three Doors Down, they think that song, they think, oh, it's the insurance commercial band. And Three Doors Down is a much more broad band with a really big book of work. It's, it's really great quality music if you like the sound that they have. At least I think so. Music's always subjective. The song I have for you today is called Life on My Own. And it wasn't written really for the time that we're in, but it could be. It's much more of an individual thing about being able to take a risk, being able to go out and, and get things to happen, being able to not be afraid that things might not work out, and also living kind of a life that says to someone that wants to be part of your life, this is me. This is me. This is who I am, and I'm not going to stop doing this. So if you want to be in my life, you're going to deal with the fact that I'm going to be this go-getter that's going to go out there and do things and take risks. 
But it could be for now with all this stupid freaking pandemic crap and people hiding away from a disease with a survival rate that's, you know, higher than most. Most elective surgeries have a, a death rate of around 1%-ish. At least tons of them do. Anything that's kind of an elective surgery but it's kind of complicated. A lot of people go into surgeries they don't actually need that they have a higher risk of dying from than if you get COVID. And yet we hide and we cower and we, we, we pretend and we virtue signal and we say, oh, but what we're really worried about is the old lady that lives in Seattle, even though that we live over here in Philadelphia. Come on. They have used fear to control you. They've made fear a virtue. This song is really completely the antithesis of that. And so it's a great song to end a week on. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. There was